Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Mark Owen Jones about government's longstanding efforts to influence media narratives in the Middle East and the rise of social media. Then, John, Natasha, and I continue the conversation. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Dr. Mark Owen Jones is an assistant professor of Middle East studies at Hamid bin Khalifa University in Qatar. He's the author of a new book, Digital Authoritarianism in the Middle East. Mark, welcome to Babel. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. What's the key argument of your book? The key argument is that digital technology is being used increasingly as a tool of oppression and that we're seeing the emergence of what I call digital superpowers, especially Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, who are successful at leveraging digital technology to project influence both domestically and internationally. Now, it feels to me like this is part of a broader context of intra-regional struggles in the Middle East, arguably starting in the 1950s. Malcolm Kerr memorably wrote about the Arab Cold War and how Gamal Abdel Nasser used Sotul Arab, Voice of the Arabs, radio broadcasting to reach around governments and talk directly to different governments' publics. And it was part of this broader rivalry between then revolutionary republics and monarchies in the Middle East. Is this similar to that, or do you think it's really different? I mean, I think the principle is absolutely similar. The use of technology in order to spread hegemony is one aspect of this. And as you said, you mentioned Gamal Abdel Nasser's the use of the radio in particular, and also newspapers. In Iran, we saw people recording cassettes of sermons and then circulating those as kind of these revolutionary aids. And what we're seeing now with digital technology is is the same. And I think digital technology and all technologies have a different functionality. Digital technology is different in the sense that everyone has a smartphone on them at all times, which allows them both to be receivers information and communicators information, so broadcasters and receivers, which in many ways is a unique development. So it allows people to be contacted and communicated with almost at all times. So I think that's what really separates it is the fact that the technology has changed. And certainly what we see is the advent of a sort of political order that is obviously trying to remold and redefine the region. So combined with that, you have Mohammed bin Salman, for example, Mohammed bin Zayed, trying to reshape the region and also project influence internationally. And now they have digital technology with which to do that. So I think in a way that comparison makes perfect sense. It's just the technologies change and the key drivers and influences within this shift are different than they were in the 50s. Yeah, and the technology we skipped was television. Yes, exactly. And of course, Saudis created NBC and had newspapers, another technology we missed. And the Saudis, in many ways, had hegemony over the pan-Arab news media for decades. And then we have Al Jazeera. You're currently living in Qatar. I'm sure you've watched a fair bit of Al Jazeera. You may also have appeared on Al Jazeera, as have I, right? Yeah. And it seems to me that, that Al Jazeera was perceived as a deep threat by most governments in the region, not only because it gave voice to democratic voices, but because it gave voice to radical voices. It had governments lose control of the narrative, and they felt really drive the publics. 
into very, very dangerous places. And it always struck me that that the government of Qatar was sort of aware of it and sort of enjoyed that a small country could have a, a huge footprint and didn't really see much particular threat to them, although other countries like Saudi Arabia saw it as a deep threat to the king. I mean, the evolution of that media approach is also interesting to, to foreground that discussion. You mentioned NBC and Atana. I talk about it in my book briefly of how I think there's a tendency to overemphasize maybe the role of Mohammed bin Salman in this media hegemony project. Especially after the first Gulf War, we saw Saudi invest in particular in these kind of more legacy media outlets from buying up satellites to news channels and attempting essentially to dominate that hegemony over the media space. And I think that's, as you said, Al Jazeera was the upstart that challenged the ability to control that media space. And media space control, it was an Arabic-wide phenomenon. And I, I think that's what's very interesting about the Arab world. We live in a place where there's 25 different countries who speak Arabic. It's a national language. There's not many places in the world or regions where you have that kind of setup. That investment in those media outlets was an attempt to try and exert hegemony over that space. Al Jazeera itself, obviously, it, it posed the challenge to that. And as you said, some of the radical voices, I think in particular, like hosting Yusuf Qaradawi, the spiritual leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, was seen as very antagonistic. I think the Arab uprisings were another element of that history that showed to certain Gulf regimes that Al Jazeera's influence in the media space was dangerous. I remember in Bahrain in particular, Al Jazeera broadcast Shouting in the Dark, which was a documentary filmed about the repression of Bahrain protests in 2011. And very quickly, Bahrain complained to Qatar to have it banned. I even remember the foreign minister of Bahrain, Khaled al-Khalifa, taking to Twitter to tell people to vote against this documentary, which was up for an award. So there was a huge issue. And they're just two examples of this sensitivity that Al Jazeera has had. So Al Jazeera seen to be a problem by an, a number of different, I suppose, states, but particularly the Gulf states. And I think the blockade we saw in 2017, where Saudi, Egypt, Bahrain and the UAE blockaded Qatar was interesting because one of the key demands was that Al Jazeera be shut down. And a lot of the fake accounts and Twitter manipulation I saw was specifically directed at Al Jazeera. So I think Al Jazeera was a key element of contention and a lot of the diplomatic issues we've seen, in, particularly in the Gulf. I had a memorable and somewhat strange dinner at a Lebanese restaurant in London with Ahmed Mansour, who at that time had just come back from being a correspondent in Fallujah and Faisal Qasim, who hosts The Opposite Direction, and, and Yosri Foda. And it was clear to me that Ahmed Mansour's broadcasting from Fallujah was meant to whip up public sentiment against the Americans. I suggested that that might not actually be a role for a journalist to whip up public sentiment. He was arguing back, Faisal Qasim, the host of a very hot, contentious debate program, got very excited and said, you have to do this on my show. But Al Jazeera was really trying to create, in many ways, dissension. It was trying to give voice to some really fringe ideas. I know as somebody who watched Al Jazeera, whenever I see a guest described as writer and researcher, Kate Bobache, who does the person work for? What are they doing? And they're often putting forward crazy ideas. So it seems to me that what's remarkable about this phenomenon is it feels like it's part of a 70-year battle and not a battle with Al Jazeera, not a battle necessarily with Arab radio, not a battle with social media, but a broader sense that people in the Middle East are battling for 
political and social influence. And what's striking, you said there aren't many regions of the world like this. The other one's Latin America, which doesn't really have any of this competition for intellectual cultural hegemony or political hegemony. Well, one of the issues as well, I mean, you live in a highly authoritarian region. I know Latin America and still is in some ways also very autocratic. If you have censorship or the dominance of particularly one state, but also within each country, a highly censored media, there aren't many outlets for Arabic speaking intellectuals, whether it's universities or media. And I think a lot of those fringe ideas perhaps have not been visible to most people because they've just not been given any platform or space. And so I think getting that window into society, it can be striking in that regard, just because we're not used to seeing it. And it is unusual. And radical for whom is another interesting point. I remember again in Bahrain when Prince Walid bin Talal's news channel that lasted about a day because they decided in one of their first airings to interview a member of the Bahraini opposition. And that was seen as a red line by the regime, but they were still a member of the legal opposition. So I think that's one of the aspects we see here is just there hasn't been that space for opposition. And maybe this idea of opposition culture is somewhat different because again, with authoritarian regimes, you don't have those decades of oppositions developing through formal institutions in the same way we might used to. And so I think it can lend itself to having or creating fringe groups, for one, which also thrive in these kind of political environments. So we've gone sort of from radio to television newspapers, to satellite television, to social media. Where does this go? First, do you see a continuing battle for the heart and soul of Arabic-speaking publics? And second, I don't think there's any reason to think that social media is going to be the final word any more than satellite television was the final word. I mean, it won't go away, but where do you see communication and political communication going in the region? I, I think this does happen with every new technology. There's a tendency to fetishize new technology and see it as deterministic and offering redemption against autocracy. And certainly that was the case with social media in 2010 and 11. People had a lot of faith in it as this liberating technology that would help bring in democracy. We saw it co-opted very quickly. Regimes were able to centralize control in a number of ways through intimidation, through surveillance. I'm not saying like that's just it, that social media is purely dystopian. But at the same time, the desire to control those spaces isn't going away. And what we're seeing in the digital world is increased centralization of control of the internet which I think is going to play into the hand of authoritarian regimes. And, you know, Arendt always talks about what distinguishes totalitarianism from authoritarianism is the desire to be more and more closely involved in the private life of citizens, right? So digital technology now allows regimes to increasingly cross that barrier into the private life through intrusive surveillance, through monitoring, through creating data profiles of subjects based on their social media consumption patterns. So I fear that whatever is next is going to be the use of data data profiles, surveillance tools to actually increasingly sort of monitor citizens. I mean, so that's on the government control side, but there's also the public space, public discussion side. And as you've pointed out, there's been a lot of attention paid to Russia and the Internet Research Agency and efforts to subvert public conversation by making nothing true or nobody's sure what's true. Is there anything that can be done about that piece, the hope that you can actually have a common fact-based discussion among publics? Or does social media just knock that possibility out of contention? I think the issue is if people are receiving their news from TikTok or Snapchat or Twitter, and that space is penetrated either by state operators or others, it's very difficult then for people to enjoy what has been called a shared reality. 
because so much of the time when political discussions take place in order to disrupt them you have to supply some form of other issue whether it's a fabricated story or some other disinformation and that's a problem but also i think the increasing knowledge that people have about how their governments are behaving or also undermining the trust that people have in institutions and trust between institutions is crucial in creating that shared reality because if you don't trust these key interlocutors and nodes in disseminating information such as the media or the government then actually people are always going to question what they're being told and i think this is something that we're seeing now in russia and the us but this is maybe something we've seen a lot in the middle east and i don't think it's necessarily going to get any better i've seen a lot of cross germination of like covid-19 conspiracy theories and uh, they're pretty big also in, in arabic language and there's even an arabic speaking right wing make arabia great again movement so you see them kind of breaking bread together and governments at times exploiting these narratives like the whole qanon narrative that was weaponized at one point in saudi arabia to demonize hillary clinton because hillary clinton was seen as supporting the muslim brotherhood and al jazeera so that was tacked on so i think we have this danger of a lot of these more extreme fringe conspiracies actually crossing boundaries and borders so i guess this goes from political science to philosophy what is the future of trust in a world where people have endless access to information that confirms whatever they want to believe where there is no authoritative source where governments are not relied on or reliable conveyors of information i mean how do societies work when you don't have a common denominator to bring people together or for people to center around when we see that and i do think this is a product of the maybe late capitalism the idea of living in a surveillance society there is an atomization of the individual where individuals are increasingly isolated from one another in a philosophical sense what i saw in the arab uprisings the use of social media suddenly people not trusting anyone they could speak to for fear that those people could be mukhabarat or part of the state apparatus also then reduce the people's trust i would say what we see for example the rise of donald trump i think was an interesting phenomenon because part of donald trump's appeal was someone who basically appeared for many as a savior who was fighting against this idea of a mainstream media this corrupt political establishment and i think what happens in the space is that it leaves the space vulnerable maybe to these kind of savior roles these populists who can try and reassert trust by essentially writing off the coattails of this argument that we can't trust anyone mainstream media is lying and then by doing that they seek to rally a constituency and i think part of populism is a reaction to a lack of trust in traditional institutions so i think this lack of trust in institutions can contribute to radicalization it can contribute to the rise of populism and we might see more of that one of the things that i've also noticed is that you know people are still good at telling stories and while on social media there's sort of an atomization that goes on you still have mass media that brings people together i wrote an article late in 2011 about how television was more important than social media in spreading the arab spring because al jazeera in particular had a mass audience and could frame language and frame a plot line and bring people together to share an experience and share an understanding of an experience that i find social media doesn't do because everybody's going off in their own direction because you have lots of small groups and it helps you it keeps you from doing things but it's hard to build something because it is so hard as you point out to have that shared positive narrative 
Yeah, I mean, I think this has been an issue for the demise of state broadcasting. Much of which is not much missed. Yeah, not much missed, exactly. But you and I are talking now a few days after the Queen of England has died. And when she was coronated, it was the only thing that you could watch on TV. There was one channel. And so what happens in these events where you might have eight people sitting in a living room watching the one TV that they have, you have a lot of different people's attention focused into a singular event, right? Rather than the fragmentation of the attention, you have a concentration of attention on a singular event, and that can be used, as you mentioned, stories like narrative building or state building or nation building in a successful way to try and reinforce those symbols of state through technology. And now we're seeing, in a way, to a degree, the opposite. We're seeing the atomization, but the fragmentation of attention across different platforms. People are asynchronous. People are watching content when and where they please and watching different content. And there's so much content. This is another thing, right? There's just so much content. And a lot of it is probably entertainment. So yeah, we're not seeing the same kind of connection between large groups of communities in a national polity direct and necessarily the same things. And I think there are attempts to try and reconcile that. That's why we see the control of Twitter. But I think these things lend themselves to the fact that it's becoming hard, I think, for traditional technology to create those narratives. And also, who's watching them? I mean, Al Jazeera did that in the Arab uprisings. But one of the things Al Jazeera suffers from now is the fact that its viewership is a lot older, majority men over 40s and their 50s. And I know Al Jazeera still want to capture that youth kind of thing. And how do they do that without changing the way in which they package news and stories because younger people increasingly are looking at Snapchat and TikTok. I mean, people I think below now the age of 30 are much less likely to use Facebook. In class the other day, I, a class of 19 to 21 year olds, I asked who use Facebook. No one put their hand up. It's all TikTok and Snapchat. So how does that mean people are going to consume news? And what is news in that world? The whole nature of that technology, the functionality of it is short videos, short snappy videos, right? I do these Twitter threads where I analyze Twitter and then I try and put it in a thread, usually of about 800 words, to try and describe to people what's going on Twitter. So I was asked to do it on TikTok, where I created this short video, no more than two minutes to describe this. And what we'll see, certainly in news, is these kind of two-minute videos, maybe shorter, probably shorter, in which complex issues have to be explained in very succinct terms, but also they have to catch people's attention incredibly quickly because it only takes a couple of seconds before someone decides whether to scroll up or not. So it's going to change the way in which we produce news, not necessarily make it more sensationalist, but there's going to be perhaps some gimmicks that are designed to try and suck people in to actually get them to watch it. And I can only imagine what some of those gimmicks might be. And there's certainly a way in which when you used to have a state broadcast, you'd have to earn an audience. The audience was guaranteed. And now the audience, you don't earn an audience by saying something verifiable or true, you are an audience by saying something that is memorable, that evokes an emotional reaction. It does feel to me like the region is going toward a very different place than the stock images we're all used to of a million people in the street shaking their fists, chanting in unison. Instead, it's a lot of people staring at their phones, wondering what they should pay attention to. It reminds me of a bit going to concerts. If you go to a concert now, like most people whip out their phone and start filming it. And so this is the idea of we're living through this mediatization, even if we are co-present in physical space, we're somehow mediating that experience through the technology that we have to stay recorded. And I think the idea that we need bodies in the street at the end of the day are probably what are going to shift regimes or lead to revolutions or bodies at the ballot box. And I think there's always going to be a space for people going out into the street. And on an extreme level, traditionally, that might be people who 
can't get jobs and therefore can't pay for food or the price of bread becomes too much that they can't afford it. If that happens, I still think people are going to go into the street, particularly if they can't charge their phones, then they literally will have no choice but to go to the streets. So I think that's going to happen. I think digital technologies gives people an opportunity to partake in those experiences remotely or do different things. I know from the Arab Spring, there was this sometimes a criticism, what were called keyboard warriors. People would stay behind their phones or computers and they criticize the regime from afar. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because every revolution, army or whatever needs some sort of a comms team or logistics team who all form different functions. But I do think that the nature of space might change. We've seen the likes of anonymous hackers who are able to bring down infrastructure. I think today, anonymous in the Ukraine army basically hacked the Russian taxi system and made all the taxis in Russia go to the same spot in Moscow, causing this kind of infrastructural gridlock. It's pretty funny. I would like to, but we'll see more, I think. So does this mean if we're becoming more technologically savvy, we're going to have people whose tactics of protest are going to be more integrated with that technological world? And are we going to see forms of civil disobedience that change because of that? That's very possible. So rather than going and blocking a road in a form of civil disobedience, people might hack a power station, switch off power, or hack a police station and wipe files. So I think that is one interesting thing that we might see develop, and it is already happening right now, but in a far more global context, because another thing about digital technology is it's exposed people from different parts of the world to different struggles and causes. And I think that's also an interesting development. A lot to watch. Marco and Jones, thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you, John. It was great being here. Next, John, Natasha, and I continue the conversation about what all this means for the United States and the region. John, you noted in the interview that in a lot of ways, efforts to control or influence the online space mirror earlier efforts to control traditional media in the Middle East, like newspapers or TV. But Mark Owen Jones also talked about how social media is different from earlier traditional media forms in a lot of ways. What do you think social media let states in the region do that they can't do with traditional media? Well, broadcasting is one way. And you only know what you're telling people. And you know what they're receiving. You don't know what they're doing with it. And one of the things you can do with social media is you can see what individuals are doing. You can see what people forward to other people, what people react to, how they react. When I've spoken to people in the region, to governments in the region, there's a huge amount of interest in using social media to monitor where the populations are. In fact, a lot of governments think that doing it the way they're doing, working through social media, is a lot better path to follow than elections, which a lot of governments in the Middle East say are polarizing and gives rise to extremism. What they'd like to do, in many cases, is use social media and other tools to monitor the public and meet the public demands, not through the ballot box, but through what people do every day in their phones. What Mark said about the intimacy of this new technology is really fascinating to me. I mean, the power of the state or anyone to sort of feed you information and surveil you is nearly constant with this new technology, which wasn't necessarily the case with broadcast television or radio. But I think the ability of one to get in one's mind and then stay there is much more effective and cheaper than relying on human intelligence, for example, or attempting to censor sort of this vast media landscape. And I think, you know, as these actors are able to collect more data, and as more and more people get connected as well, the power of this surveillance and propaganda will only get more powerful for nearly everyone in the world to have a, have a smartphone. 
And so I think we have the power to touch someone on the other side of the world for good and for ill more than at any other time in, in human history. And, you know, there's the power to collect information on every aspect of someone's life, as John was alluding to. And, you know, one example of that is in China, they're able to collect so much data on the population because so much of their population is connected via smartphones and the Internet that people can get a microloan in seconds on their phone. But they're able to do that because the government knows everything about them through that same technology. These loan programs even have an indicator that predicts whether someone is going to pay a loan or default based on whether or not they let their battery run out consistently on their smartphone. So I think this ability to collect data is something that I think the U.S. government is still wrapping its head around. But the power of that is something that I think we really all need to better understand. Well, and there's no question the U.S. government and the way Americans think about it, there are huge constraints on what the government's allowed to do and what the government's allowed to collect information on. And in fact, I've spoken to a number of people in the intelligence community who wish they knew as much about individuals as Google and Facebook does. What Middle Eastern governments have in some ways is much more than Google and Facebook have on every individual. There are security benefits. I would argue there are security costs to running it this way. But it's clearly a different approach to media, to where the public is. And I think it has partly resulted in publics being in a different place, having different expectations of their government. In fact, when I talk to people in the Middle East, most people don't have an expectation of privacy. In the United States and in Europe, the expectation of privacy is very high. In the Middle East, it, it tends to be low and people... I think are often accepting of a government argument that security requirements mean people just don't have that privacy. Talking about the United States there reminded me of your conversation earlier this year on Babel with Nadia Oidat and when you said that the United States is a bit constrained in the disinformation space because it's constrained by the truth in a way that maybe other actors aren't. So I was thinking if we could apply that to this and talk about what are the consequences if this continues and the United States isn't able to counter it effectively, disinformation and this surveillance of the population. What are the some of the implications for U.S. interests in the region? I would say that Arab governments has sort of embraced the chaos in order to control it. And this comes in many forms. It comes in sort of flooding the information landscape with the notion or the idea that they want to propagate. It also comes through harassing people through trolls and, and other mediums to ensure that anyone who is in a, you know, a, a slightly contrarian role is silenced effectively. And we've seen a lot of reports in the past 10 years about how, you know, contrary to what we thought about social media democratizing, the information landscape that there, it actually leads to self-censorship because people are worried about being attacked online. And so I think that there's a reason to be worried about this from a human rights perspective. And there was actually a, a UN report that recently just came out talking about privacy rights in, in the digital age. But I think that there's also a strategic concern that I have, that if people are consistently silenced when there is discontent, 
we do not understand potentially smaller problems before they explode into much larger problems, into instability across the region or in various countries. Strategically speaking, there's an issue with that as well that I don't think that we have sort of fully grasped. The other piece of this that I think we have to take account of is that the United States comes to the social media experience with a tremendous legacy of individualism. The Middle East comes to the social media experience with still a very heavy legacy of group identity, group solidarity. And there's a way in which there's not the same demand to be individual, to differentiate, to complain. In some ways, the, the, the social expectation is that you'll come together. And I think Middle Eastern governments have used this partly to prevent the fragmentation they see from a really individualistic environment taking place on social media, but also using social media to reinvigorate this sense of social solidarity. I think, in fact, in a lot of Middle Eastern states, certainly not all, but some of the wealthier states in the Gulf, there really is a sense of solidarity. The government is protecting me. The government is providing opportunities for me. And it's true because the government, in many cases, are providing jobs and subsidized housing and healthcare and education, all those things. And there's a way in which 21st century technology is helping 19th century political notions survive because it reinforces this sense of belonging, which I think for us in the United States, seeing how social media is implemented seems crazy. How can you talk about 19th century notions being reinforced by 21st century technology? But I think in, in the Middle East, in many cases, that's what is going on. That also reminds me of this idea that Marco and Jones brought up about the rise of social media and how that has led to an erosion of trust between citizens and in more authoritative media. As I think in the interview, you said there's no truth or no one really knows what the truth is. Do you see any limitations to this kind of strategy using social media in that way? I think governments don't have the same tools they used to. For example, famously, the, the Saudi government waited for days before they reported Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in 1990 because they didn't know how to report it. You can't keep the news out anymore. But what we see governments doing is combating news they don't like, undermining it, disproving it. I think that, that governments used to have much more of a monopoly on what issues were brought up. Now they have tremendous muscle to influence how people think about issues, to give a sense of what the party line is. In some cases, to overwhelm facts or opinions they don't like using social media technology, but they can't design the playing field the way they used to. The advantage they have, as we were talking about before, is they can monitor the impacts of what they do in real time. And so the governments have given up some, they've gained some. And part of the, my question, and, and Marco and Jones and I were talking about this, is where does this all go? I mean, we're sort of used to thinking about social media in 2022. What does social media look like in 2025 or 2032? What do people consider newsworthy items to be? I certainly, I was in the Emirates and people told me about all the news they were watching 
They're watching excerpts of the Johnny Depp trial on TikTok. Is that the news? Is that what will overwhelm the mind space, not how governance is proceeding, not issues of safety, not issues of accountability, but instead sort of celebrity and, and entertainment completely overwhelming any formal news which relates to governance. I have a harder time predicting where that's going, but it's possible that we move into a space where, where it's bread and circuses, as the Romans would say, and governments feel they have much more impunity to carry out whatever action they want and find ways to build social solidarity, political solidarity with this idea of the, the government's the provider. If governments are less able to provide, that model becomes much harder to execute. That's really interesting. I mean, the thing that came to mind when you mentioned public trust and then when John mentioned sort of where is this going and circling it back to what U.S. interests would be, I think the other thing that I find really fascinating about this is it doesn't just control these governments' ability to control the narrative within their countries, but also across borders. And, you know, I found this, I had worked for the, for the White Helmets for a couple of years, and they were the target of a, probably one of the most successful disinformation campaigns in modern history, partly from the Syrian regime, partly from Russia, now a little bit from China. But what was so interesting about that, and devastating, I think, about that disinformation campaign was that even though it was meant to discredit the White Helmets, which is sort of a group of volunteer search and rescue workers within Syria that sort of sprouted up during the Syrian conflict, the effect of that disinformation campaign was that they were able to flip the script on the entire conflict. So provide enough confusion about the entire conflict that it actually sort of discredited the United States and other European governments that were funding humanitarian programs, the White Helmets, you know, other things that were going on in Syria that were, I think, beneficial. And also to, you know, further discredit the United States. And I think that we're seeing that even with sanctions right now, both on Syria, but also on Russia, that these governments are able to sort of take that story and, and reshape it, saying, you know, the pain that you're feeling in terms of food security, for example, it's not because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's because of these sanctions, these Western sanctions. That's the issue. So I think this ability to to flip the script and also to get an audience, which they have very successfully done in the United States and Europe and in other countries, is something that we also need to pay attention to. So they're able to target their own population within the United States, you know, Iranian dissidents or Uyghur activists, etc., but also to, to sort of criticize U.S. foreign policy in a way that it, it sort of translate or translates or makes sense to an American audience. And I think that's something that the U.S. government is also obviously grappling with since the, the 2016 election. But I, I think that it is happening in ways that are broadening and becoming more powerful as time goes on, too. John and Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Music